I'm sure you've noticed that I'm excited today, and one of the main reasons is that you're going to get to hear from one of my favorite Bible teachers and the person that has inspired me the most in my life, my wife, Rachel Armstrong. And so will you welcome her up to the stage as an Esther who will teach us about this story today? I didn't know if you were like, I didn't know what to (laughs) Felt kind of awkward. (laughs) Y'all, he's too much. Okay. All right. I feel like I was born at the wrong time. Have you ever heard someone say that? I won't name names, but a lady sitting right over here I was hanging out with last weekend in the lobby, and she said it. She said, raising a teenager in this generation, I just know I was not made for this time and place. This is a crazy time to live on the globe, right? But a lot of you have said that. I know I have said this before. I can remember in my early teens, I went through my Jane Austen phase. Any girls still reading Pride and Prejudice? I'm going to make my kids read that. You're going to read that. Anyway, um, I began to identify with this other era and think, yes, I was born at the wrong time and place. I want to be back in a different time. And I held on to that belief until I read a verse in the Bible that changed my mind. It's from Acts 17. I want you to hear it. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. This verse tells us that people are not born at the wrong time. God says, I decide. I decide the time in history and the place on the globe that you're going to live. So when I realized that I had an opinion that didn't match with what God told me in his word, I adjusted my thinking to match with his. And I began to believe that, in fact, Mount Juliet, Tennessee, in the year 1980, was exactly the time and the place that I was meant to be born. So if we keep reading in the next verse, we learn the criteria that God used to decide the time and the place for each person. Acts 17, 27 says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So I believe the time that I was born at this time and at this place is this was the time in all of history and this was the place on all of the globe that I was most likely to reach out and find God. And it worked. I found him, although it feels more accurate to say he found me. And some of you are agreeing. You have found God in the time and the place that you have lived. Others of you may be feeling a little skeptical. You may be thinking, I haven't found God. I haven't been found by God. But you are in this room today or watching on the live stream or listening to this podcast at some point in the future and you're hearing my voice. And I think that has to mean something. I think it could be that this is the time and this is the place that you could reach out and find God. He's not far away from you. So hang with me for a little while and let's think about that some more. We've been talking about Esther for the last few weeks. Esther may have thought that she was born at the wrong time and at the wrong place. She might have wondered, why couldn't I have been born when the Jewish people still had rule and control over themselves and they were in their own land? Why am I in a time of being in exile and having no power? Or why couldn't I have been born in a different place, a place where women aren't forced into relationships with kings who have hundreds of concubines? But in spite of being in a difficult time and a difficult place, we see that Esther found God. And once you have found God, that is the most important purpose for your life. 
It's the most important thing that will ever happen to you. But it is just the beginning. What I have found in being blessed to have known God for most of my life is that the gifts that he gives us just keep on coming. And one of the greatest gifts that God gives to his people is the gift of purpose. People wrestle with these existential questions. Why am I here? What is the point of all of this? Does my life have any meaning? And we can find those answers in knowing God. My degree is in social work, and I have spent my life trying to help people. I've tried to help people in a lot of different ways. I've tried to connect them to resources in the community for housing and safety. I've made home visits to teach parents how to help their children that have developmental delays. I've worked in a psychiatric hospital doing therapy groups. Currently, I work for a Christian nonprofit, and so I have a lot of freedom right now to bring God into the helping process. So I quote a psychologist named Kathy Koch on a regular basis. She says this, an intentional God who doesn't make mistakes created you on purpose and for a purpose. So in all the ways that I try to help people, I find there are very few things that can help someone more than believing that God created them and that he has a purpose for their life. God created human beings to know him and once you know him, to bring him glory. So if you have been wondering about your purpose in life, it is to know God and to bring him glory. And you're welcome. So, no, it's, it's more specific than that. God gets more specific than just knowing him and bringing him glory. Um, a verse that has meant a lot to me in my life, a verse that's given purpose to the time and the place that I live in is Ephesians 2.10. It says, You are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. God made a place for me in his story. God prepared in advance good works for you to do. When God chose the time and the place that you would live, he also chose a purpose for you. Things that you can do that will bring him glory. This is bigger and better than random acts of kindness. This is planned by God, acts of kindness that he might have for you to do. It infuses every day, every encounter you have with meaning. Maybe the person who sits next to you in biology is sitting beside you because of all the time in history and all the places in the world sitting next to you might be the time that they could find God. If you have neighbors, which I think you do, coworkers, if you play soccer with other families, if you have a dental hygienist, a cashier at the grocery store, there could be a purpose in each person that you're encountering. God might have a good work for you to do. So whatever position you're currently in, maybe you're the teacher, maybe you're the student, maybe you're a nurse, maybe even you're the patient, God might have placed you at this time and this place for a purpose. Let's go back to our story and see how Esther is doing with this same enormous question that her father Mordecai has asked her. Who knows, Esther, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Esther has been given the purpose of asking the king to save the Jewish people. They've been targeted for destruction, and asking the king for this might very well cost Esther her life. Esther asks her friends, her attendants, the Jewish people to fast for three days on her behalf. And then she takes her life, places it in God's hands, and goes before the king, breaking the law to come into his presence without invitation. And she finds favor. The king extends his scepter to her. And the king asks, what is it, Queen Esther? 
what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. What? Esther, he just said you can have half the kingdom. Why are you throwing a banquet? Well, maybe the queen knows King Xerxes better than I do. Maybe she knows he likes a good party. She needs to loosen him up a little bit before she gets to the big question. So the king and Haman go to the banquet, and the text says, as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. I can imagine Esther taking a deep breath. Here's the moment. Esther replies, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to another banquet that I will prepare for them, and then I will ask him my question. At this point, I am confused. In my mind, Esther is taking too long. She is going to wear out his goodwill. Go ahead and ask while he is promising half the kingdom. But maybe there's something I'm not seeing. Maybe there's more to the story than just this little part we're looking at. Maybe the three days of fasting and prayers that went up are the reason for this delay. Maybe God is putting things together, putting pieces in place just where he needs them and just in the right time. Because Esther is not the only person in the story Let's see how these same events are affecting two other people in our story, Haman and Mordecai. You remember Haman, right? He's the villain. He's the second highest official in the court, and he is the one who wrote the edict allowing all the Jews to be murdered on a specific day. So after Esther's first banquet with Haman and the king, Haman is feeling pretty good about himself, and he's made a plan to go home and tell his wife and friends that he was the only person invited to dine with the king and the queen. But on the way home, he runs into Mordecai in the streets. And you remember Mordecai as well. This is Esther's cousin who became her dad. And Mordecai will not show reverence to Haman in the street. This isn't the first time that it's happened. We heard last week in chapter 3 how as a general practice, Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. And this was the source of Haman's anger towards the Jewish people. So he goes on home, but his mood is ruined He goes ahead and brags. He tells his wife and his friends, you know how wealthy I am. You know how I'm the second highest official in all of the land. The king has trusted me with so much. Turns out I'm the queen's favorite as well, the only person invited to dine with her and the king. And then he says this, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So here's one thing we can learn from Haman. When your purpose is your own glory, you will constantly need more. Everyone else in the whole kingdom showing him reference was not enough. If there was one person who wouldn't bow to him, Haman could not stand it. If you get 120 likes on social media, but no one comments on your post, I mean, you know, we, when we're trying to lift ourselves up to get glory for ourselves, there's never enough. It's constant striving. We always need more. We find out that Haman's wife and friends are not going to be much help in getting any perspective in front of Haman. It's not enough for them that in a very short amount of time, Mordecai will be murdered simply for being a Jew, according to this edict. They decide that the best course of action is to construct a 75-foot-high pole in the backyard to impale Mordecai on. 
So Haman thinks their advice is pretty good. He starts working on this poll, and he makes a plan to get up early the next morning, go to the palace, and get the king's permission for this execution he has planned. This leads to a second warning we can glean from Haman's life. When your purpose is your own glory, you might find yourself plotting for someone else's destruction. Now, not many of us actually build gallows in our backyard for anyone else, but we all know how to put another person down. We've all found ourselves making the sarcastic comment or one-upping somebody else, spreading the rumor. This is how we can find ourselves living if we forget who we are meant to bring glory to in our life. The next portion of scripture is absolutely fascinating to me. The very same night that Haman is constructing the 75-foot high pole for Mordecai, King Xerxes can't sleep. The king asks his servants to bring in some royal records and read them out loud to him. The king is hoping some boring royal records will put him to sleep. But it doesn't. In fact, the portion of script of scripture, no, it was not scripture. The portion of royal records that they were reading to him reminded him of a time that Mordecai actually saved his life. We didn't look at it specifically, but in Esther chapter 2, Uh, It tells about Mordecai overhearing two people planning to murder the king. He takes that information to Esther. Esther's able to tell the king and the conspiracy is ended. So the king is reminded on this night he can't sleep that Mordecai has saved his life. He asks his servants, what has been done to honor Mordecai for this service to the king? And they tell him nothing. So he spends the rest of the night wondering how he can honor Mordecai. So on the very same night that Haman is plotting for Mordecai's destruction, the king is reminded that he owes his life to Mordecai. Is it odd or is it God? I have a friend who says that little phrase, and she says it to point out that there are no coincidences. We see God doing something here, even though he's not named. You know, the book doesn't say God did any of this. So even without being mentioned, we see God at every turn in the story of Esther. And we see him very clearly in the exquisite timing with which the last chapters play out. There's a word for God working in this way, and it's the word providence. I like this definition for providence. Providence is the means by which God directs all things towards a worthy purpose. Our church's name is Providence, but there was a time about 11 years ago when this church didn't have a name. We definitely did not yet own this land. We were just getting started as a new church looking for temporary locations like school gyms to meet in, and we found it was difficult to invite people to a church with no name. So we had to pick one. But Jacob and I found this harder than naming our three children. We talked about all kinds of different names, but we kept coming back to Providence Church. It was such a cool spiritual word, and we were hoping that we could end up here where all this new growth in Mount Juliet had come. But I was afraid. I felt like it could be really awkward for our marketing if we ended up naming the church Providence and building on the other side of town. You'd be like, Providence Church, we're not really in Providence. But we were reminded of how God had put this purpose in our heart to start this new church. In 2005, Jacob and I were driving back home to Mount Juliet to visit our parents when we saw a billboard on the interstate that said, Providence, live, shop, play. So we pulled off the interstate, and we began driving through these streets that didn't have many houses yet, didn't have all the shops, but we saw what Mount Juliet intended to do for new growth, and we began to wonder, could God be up to more than providing a place for people to live, shop, and play? 
Might this be something God would use in his providence to bring people to a place that they could find him? And we begin to believe that maybe God had a vision for this community. So we moved forward on faith. We named our church Providence. And I wish I had time to recount every story of how God has put all the pieces together, how the timing has been just right, how he's given us favor in the eyes of people who own this land, moved in people's hearts like yours to give money to be able to build this building. But God has fulfilled a worthy purpose here to see people who feel disconnected from God and the church find hope, healing, and wholeness in Jesus Christ. And we know that many of you have your own Providence story. We have the Welcome 101 gathering about once a month here. People come who want to go deeper and connect with the church, but oftentimes people will share their Providence story, the way they saw God working to let them find out about this church or this neighbor who invited them and how they came on a Sunday. It was just the right time for them to be able to find God, either for the first time or in a new way. And we're so thankful that God has done this, and we're praying he'll continue to do it. There's a famous Bible verse that contains this idea of providence. It even says the word purpose, which is what we're talking about here, although sometimes people forget to quote the whole verse. So let's look at it together. Romans 8:28 says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I see the truth of this verse in our story, so let's look at how it applies quickly. First of all, there's a few things this verse doesn't say that we need to talk about. It doesn't say everything that happens is good. Some things that happen are bad. Some of the things that happened to Esther were not good at all. Being orphaned, being exiled, being forced to take on a foreign name, being forced into a relationship with a king who already has hundreds of concubines, none of these things were good. But God worked all of these things together for the good of the people who loved God and were called according to his purpose. He didn't just work it for the good of Esther or just Mordecai. He worked it for the good of all the Jews in the Persian Empire. Here's another thing this verse doesn't say. Everything happens for a reason. Everything does, in fact, happen for a reason. But sometimes the reason something happens is because God allows people to make their own choices. And sometimes we make choices that cause pain for ourselves or cause pain for other people. Another reason that things can happen is that we live in a broken world. We live in a world where sickness and suffering and death still exist. So when you're trying to encourage someone who has cancer or who's lost a loved one or when their job has been eliminated, it might be a lot more helpful to say what Romans 8.28 actually says. To say that even though we don't know the reason for everything that happens, God promises that he can work good out of bad things. God says, I will not waste the hard thing you are walking through. I will find a way in my providence to bring good for you and to bring glory to me. So there's a person in our story who seems to really understand this concept, and that's Mordecai. From the very beginning of the story, we see Mordecai living in a way that's not for his own safety, not for his own pleasure, not for his own glory. He seems to be living for the purpose God has put in front of him that will bring glory to God. When a young cousin needed a father, he stepped in and became the father. When she still needs wise counsel as a grown-up, he's there. He is um, thwarting plots against kings. He's refusing to bow to men and honor them in a way only God should be honored. He's trying to save the entire Jewish people. Mordecai is about living his life to glorify God. So when the enemy comes against Mordecai, 
God in his providence worked things out in a completely different way than Haman ever envisioned. So early in the morning, Haman arrives to the palace to get the king's permission to impel Mordecai. But before Haman can ask the king, the king says to him, Haman, I really want to honor Mordecai today. So here's your job. I want you to give Mordecai the royal treatment. Parade him through the streets and tell everyone the king really appreciates Mordecai. Well, we learned in the first week, you do not disobey King Xerxes. So Haman does as he's told. But the scripture says he rushes home afterwards with his head covered in grief. Before Haman can even digest what just happened, the king's servants arrive to escort him to that second banquet that Esther has prepared. And things are about to get a lot worse for Haman. Because it's at this second banquet that the moment we've all been waiting for finally unfolds. Esther lives into the purpose God has for her in this time and this place. She pleads with the king to save her people, and her request is granted. In fact, when the king finds out that it's Haman who is to blame for this harm that would have come to the queen and her people, in the ultimate irony, Haman is impaled on the very pole he constructed for Mordecai. So we learn this third lesson from Haman. When your purpose is your own glory, you might find yourself laid low. We see this concept repeated in different ways multiple times in Scripture. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Everything negative we learned from Haman, we can learn the positive correlation to it from Mordecai. When your purpose is God's glory, you find contentment. You don't need the applause of every person on the street. You don't need to win the internet for the day. If you are able to live into the purpose God has for you, if you are able to fulfill the good works that he prepared for you to do, you can rest and you can find contentment in God being the one who gets the glory. When your purpose is God's glory, you might find yourself planning for someone else's blessing. When you are actively looking for those good works that God prepared for you to do, when you notice a coworker who's having a bad day, you begin to think, how can I encourage her? If you end up with a free Saturday on the same day the church is doing a Habitat for Humanity build, you think, I'm going to sign up. You might notice, we've been on the same soccer team with this family a couple of times now. Maybe God's trying to connect us for a reason. You can find this meaning and this contentment in blessing other people. When your purpose is God's glory, God will exalt you in due time. This might sound self-serving, but it is just the truth about how God works. In God's economy, somehow the last become first. There's a verse that says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may exalt you in due time. And we see that in Mordecai's life. He didn't get honored at the exact moment that he saved the king's life. God saved Mordecai's moment of exaltation for the exact right time and the right place when Mordecai needs it. I love this story of Esther. I've known for a couple of months that I was going to get to share with you. So I've been reading it over and over and really living in it. And it has been amazing to me how something written so long ago could impact my life so much in 2019. And I hope that you'll live with it too. We don't want to rush through these ideas as soon as this sermon series is over. So keep reading it and keep living with it. We want to make this a part of our day-to-day life. Because my my guess is your day-to-day life is a lot like mine. 
You're probably juggling a lot of responsibilities. You're probably wearing a lot of different hats. And there can be days that we forget that God might have a purpose to this time and this place. So even if the the place I find myself and the role I have for that day is taxi driver to my kids for hours on end, this is the time and this is the place God has for me. And I want to look for the purpose in it. I wasn't born at the wrong time. You were not born at the wrong time. An intentional God who doesn't make mistakes created you on purpose and for a purpose. We want to be awake to and aware of the good works he prepared in advance for for us to do. God in his providence has directed everything towards a worthy purpose that you would find him and once you find him that you would bring him glory. Amen.